0: Well, last week, our congregation witnessed the immersion of five individuals who identified themselves as followers of Christ and as members of our body. We thank God for them. Baptism, we stress, does not save, but it is the formal initiatory entrance into the body of Christ. It is the right that brings us in to the assembly in a formal way. Baptism is the means that Jesus gave the church for regenerate believers to say, I am a follower of Christ. These are my people. He is my Lord. My self-identity is rooted in my union with Jesus' death to sin and with Christ's resurrection life. So submersion in water pictures my submission to death in Christ to my sin and rising up out of the water In that I announce that Jesus is my life. That his life has been given to me eternally. This rite I think is stripped of its meaning when applied to infants since it falsely identifies with the new covenant community of God's people individuals who have not yet been regenerated. Who have not by word and spirit come to saving knowledge of Christ. Infant baptism places the initiatory rite of the church before faith and apart from spirit regeneration. So under the old covenant, there was a necessity to teach people in the covenant people to know the Lord, right? As as a young boy would be circumcised and considered as part of the people of God, there, there had to be instruction to, you need to know the Lord. You are part of the covenant people. But you need to know the Lord. Under the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his blood, all are regenerated by word and spirit. By faith in Christ and obedience to him. And so there is, and of course this is ideally, we realize there are some who are baptized who do not know Christ as Savior we work diligently to see that that is the case and so under the new covenant there's uh, now those who are regenerated that are part of the covenant people and baptism is an initiatory right to bring them in so i, I think it was aaron that said let's get dunked remember that charge for it could only come from a 20 something it's a great word and that's what we did right we dunked five people last week and we're privilege to see others join the church as well through their testimony last week but what were the rest of us doing when they were dunked we were observing we were witnesses and we rejoice to witness that much like we might rejoice in a wedding to to witness we have a part to play it's a minor one in some sense but we witness and observe these individuals as they stand and identify with christ in this way As baptism is the initiatory rite of the church, something we do once, the Lord's Supper is the continuing ordinance of the church, something we do over and over again until Jesus returns. We witness a baptism, the the majority of us. In the Lord's Supper, we join together as a church in this ongoing rite, this continuing observance of Christ's death and resurrection. Baptism is like entering the doorway into God's house and identifying with the believing community. The Lord's Supper is the meal we eat at God's table in that house, or we could even say, as the house of God. So here at this table, this table of the Lord's provision... We commune with Christ and with one another. As baptized believers, we commune here until Jesus returns. The emphasis falls upon his death, obviously, but as we learn in 1 Corinthians 11:26, 26, we proclaim this until he comes. He is alive, and we anticipate his coming. And in the text that was just read here earlier, we see also the future prospect that is dependent upon Christ's resurrection. We would never say that all who have not been immersed as confessing believers are unsaved. We would only say such professing believers should identify with Christ and His church in keeping with Jesus' instructions. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize those who have so responded in faith and continue to teach them all that I have taught you. And we would say there is no place to celebrate the ongoing rite of the church prior to one's identifying with Christ in the initiatory rite of the church. So, turning our attention now to the ongoing practice of the Lord's Supper, we've already read the historical background to this meal as we look at these two ordinances in this series on the church it is essential that we go over this familiar terrain but looking at baptism last week we turn this week to the lord's supper beyond the gospel narratives as we've read here earlier that describe jesus institution of the meal we find a brief a few brief references to the early church observing the lord's supper so we have jesus institution before his death we have some evidences of the church uh, taking this meal. But the fullest passage of instruction, as we know, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the providence of God, it is once again the failures of the Corinthian church that really help us out. They, so much of the negative corrective that takes place with the Corinthians is it, it helps to reveal in kind of a unique way what it is that we are to do. As a church. And so we, we do not rejoice in their failures and in their weaknesses, but we are thankful that it was in that weakness that it comes to the surface very clearly what the Lord's Supper is intended to be. So I invite you there to 1 Corinthians chapter eleven, and verse 17. We're going to, need to cover this entire section very fairly briefly, but to review again what we know so often because we read this text. Uh, because it is the fullest description of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament pages. We learn in this first section, and just by way of overview and briefly, the Lord's Supper is designed for believers to commune with one another in unity and love. It is designed for believers to commune with one another in unity and love. Verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. We just look back to verse 2, and there are some things in which he did commend them, but he's saying now this is an area where I cannot commend you. Because when you come together, the problem being, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Jesus died alone so that the church could worship together in unity and build one another up in the faith. The gathering of the church is intended to profit the faith and the faithfulness of the members. That's the whole point of bringing you together. But when you come together, it's actually bad. You're hurting each other by gathering together, it's harmful. He says, for, and here's what you're doing, verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There are divisions among you, and here's why I believe that in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It's almost like Paul is searching for some good in these factions, and and he finds some healthy local churches enjoy a high degree of unity the corinthian church is not a healthy church but having said that paul teaches us that disunity is to be expected from time to time and we could add well <coughs> of course <coughs> of course it is to be expected we're sinful people and sinful people get together disunity comes out of it but that's not what he says what does he latch on to there in verse 19. Why does he believe there is factions among them? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It's an interesting way of thinking. Because God uses disunity to identify those with spiritual wisdom. When there's disunity in a church, when there are factions like are going on with you, it's going to be clear there's some people who stand back from those factions from that division and say this is not right. And so the disunity, the disagreements, the factions, the divisions among the church provided the environment in which spiritually mature people could step forward and be seen as genuine. The Greek word speaks of approval after examination. There are those who did not participate in these petty divisions. They're those who would not permit this disunity to continue, and they thereby demonstrated their maturity. It's a very, very positive way of looking at disunity, isn't it? But that's Paul. And he sees that benefit in the problems that they're facing. Verse 20, when you come together, then, this is my determination, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead of his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. Now, Apparently, the Corinthian church had not stumbled upon the beauty of the potluck dinner. You would think, as you read this, there's some that are eating a whole lot and some that are going hungry, but there's actually more to it than that. They had stumbled upon the beauty of the potluck dinner. In the culture of that day, they knew it every bit as well as we did, and the whole idea was there were people who would not have enough food probably to eat, and so it was the expectation that those who were wealthier would bring more food, and the poor would come and bring whatever they could what was happening here is the wealthy were coming together and were either isolating to one side or perhaps there might be some indication they were coming early and were feasting and eating in gluttony and even in drunkenness while the poor were not fed any more than they would have eaten anyway, perhaps less, but they went away hungry. That's not the Lord's Supper. Now, what, how is it that somebody can eat a lot of food and drink to the point of drunkenness in the context of the Lord's Supper? What's going on there? Again, a little bit of difference between their day and ours. It, it would appear, this is, this is fairly widely understood, that the Christians typically had a meal, a full meal, referred to as an agape meal, the love feast. And they would eat this meal together. Then at the end of the meal, they would observe the Lord's Supper, so to speak. The whole thing was the Lord's Supper. But at the end of it, there was this unique remembrance of Christ's death. As we, much more like we would celebrate it today. So they had this this larger complex of this meal. And, and we, we talk about, um, it, it, in fact, the discussion takes place somewhat routinely here as well, and I appreciate that, but people mention sometimes how somber the Lord's Supper is. Well, I, I think if we, ha- if we did what they did, the agape meal would be the place of celebration, of laughter and joy and eating together as a church. And then bringing all the noise and froth and foam of a meal with the church as as we have it here and enjoy it from time to time, they would stop and say, Now, let's remember why we're eating together. Jesus Christ purchased this for us. Here we have the young and the old, the rich and the poor, people from different ethnicities, different walks of life, And this meeting here, this meal of all of us sharing this food together and rejoicing and celebrating and giving thanks, this is only because of Jesus. So let's stop and let's remember the Lord's death until He comes. And there they would take the bread and they would close the meal with the bread, with the cup, and would celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, what Paul is saying is that's not what's going on with you. This isn't the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper unites. It brings people together in love. I don't know what you're doing, but stop it. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You're to be rebuked. Why are they rebuked? Because such self-centered behavior was a form of despising the church of God. It was saying everything opposite of what the church is and is intended to be. It's behavior that does not recognize and honor the called out people for whom Jesus died. And so in the rebuke to that church, there is the instruction to us that teaches us that the Lord's Supper is designed to celebrate the unity of the body. We should come with thoughts of Christ. More on that in a moment, and that's the heart of it. But we should also come to the Lord's Supper with thoughts about one another. We come to this meal recognizing the unity that Jesus purchased with his death. So men and women, young and old, rich and poor, all ethnicities united in Christ and communing with one another. The Lord's Supper, we learn, is designed for believers to commune with one another in unity and love. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is instituted by Christ that we may commune with Him in His provision of salvation. And this is at the heart of it. A communion with one another, first of all. A communion with Christ in His death. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This was, this was not necessarily a direct word from the Lord to Paul, although that's possible. But the phrase emphasizes the passing on of authoritative tradition. On the night of his betrayal, at the Passover meal, Jesus instituted this memorial meal that we would continue to observe it. Verse 23, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. To break the large Flat, unleavened loaf symbolized Christ's bruised and broken body. When he says this, there I think is the bread that Jesus held in his hand. They could all see that the bread was not his body. It didn't somehow mesh together. But he's saying this, that I hold in my hand, this bread is my body that bread then became a participation in a communion with the body of Christ. It's not his literal body. It doesn't become miraculously somehow his body. It's bread. They could see it was bread. They ate it and knew they were eating bread, not his body. But they were to understand that in eating that bread, there was a sense of mysterious communion with the body of Christ, the body that was given to be crushed for our sins. So we remember and identify with Christ's selfless, substitutionary sacrifice as we eat the bread. Verse 25, In the same way also He took the cup, and after supper, supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So after the supper, that is after the Passover, there was a third cup, there were ceremonial cups. This being the third, the cup, this cup becomes a participation in the shed blood of Christ. Christ's blood seals His agreement of salvation with us in fulfillment of the old covenant provision for sin. This now is the new covenant. My shed blood will inaugurate that covenant. There is more to come. But it will indeed fulfill and establish a new relationship with my people, a way of salvation that will not look any longer to the sacrificial system of animals over and over again, but will now center on the one final sacrifice for sin, my body and blood. And all who come to faith in that message will know the Lord. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The cup stands for, of course, the contents in the cup, the wine symbolizing the covenant in Jesus' blood. Christ's blood seals the salvation covenant, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, and we proclaim this message, we commune in it, we celebrate it, Whenever we eat the Lord's Supper until Christ comes back. So we're going to keep doing this until he returns. As often as you eat this bread, let's talk on that for a moment. Some argue that we should eat the Lord's Supper every week, every Sunday. And there is, let me say, nothing wrong with that idea. But I would say the word whenever is not the word every Sunday. Whenever means whenever. Uh, One Greek scholar has said that in every use of this word it speaks of indefinite repetition. It means whenever. Paul also does not say on the other hand whenever you meet. So it's not that it's wrong for a church to... Some might say that a church should always have the Lord's Supper every time it meets. That's not going to be gained by this word. Whenever just means whenever. I suppose we do not celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday due to the insistence of so many Christians in our culture who believe that the Lord's Supper has saving grace. And so I think, I I don't know, I can't prove this historically, but I suspect that we have tended, churches such as ours, Bible-believing churches, have tended to shy away from that in some sense to demonstrate the Lord's Supper is not saving. We don't need to do this. I think we are free by this word to eat it whenever we choose. I don't know that that's necessarily a good reason not to have the Lord's Supper every week so as to demonstrate to those who get it wrong. But we are in a particular environment and I think it's something we should always be thinking about. Some would argue that not doing it every week keeps it from becoming ritualistic and I would very much differ with that argument too. I've heard it from time to time and I just cringe. Because uh, if you would say that, we don't want to do the Lord's Supper too often or it becomes ritualistic, then I, uh, that really puts preaching in a bad spot. <laughs> and singing. And uh, you know what, what else do we not do so that it doesn't become ritualistic? If the Lord's Supper becomes ritualistic, there's only one problem, and that problem's in your own heart. That, that's all the further that it goes. It's not how often we do it. And doing it too often would take... The meaning out of it. That's just a hard issue. And let me say I think the Lord's Supper every week is a good thing. Is it required? I'm not persuaded that it is. But let's lean, I think, more often, not less often, as if this meal gets in the way or something. I would very much differ, and though I don't have biblical uh, proof to stand on, but I would very much differ from those churches that are across the face of the globe that have the Lord's Supper once a year, some of them four times a year. Now, you got to hope you don't have little kids at home because you're going to be missing two out of those four for sure with some sick kid, right? Uh, I mean, that's, that's bad in my opinion. You've got these Christians that are going half a year, or in some cases, they are gone for the entire year, never celebrating the Lord's Supper. What is the worth of that? What what would commend that? I really don't understand it. So I think we should look at it as a church, never that it's a settled issue, how often that we celebrate it. But whenever we do this, we do it to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the essence of it. Now there is nothing here that says we earn grace by this meal or sacrifice of Christ. We proclaim, rather, His saving grace until He comes. That's the thing. It's a proclamation. It's a communion with with one another, first of all. It's intended that we would commune with one another in unity and love. And secondly, the Lord's Supper is instituted by Christ that we may commune with Him in His provision of salvation. Thirdly, therefore... The Lord's Supper is to be observed in a worthy manner. That's very obvious. But you're to commune with one another. Verses 17 to 22. You're to commune with Christ in His death, to identify with it, to celebrate it, to walk in it, to commune with Him, and you are therefore to come in a worthy manner. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. There's a danger in this meal. I can eat it in a way that's Sins against Christ's saving sacrifice and the people he died to save. So, verse 28 let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine himself. We are to test ourselves and approve our attitude and orientation to the table. There's no doubt that none of us is fully worthy. We don't come sinless to this meal. But am I recognizing the death of Christ or am I sinning against it in my life? Am I recognizing the body of believers? Do I see this as that which unifies? It's not saying that we need to be sinless. I love the story Warren Wearsby told at communion service in Scotland. The pastor noted that a woman in the congregation would not accept the bread and cup from the elder that handed it to her. But instead, she sat weeping. And the pastor left the table and went to her side and said, Take it, my dear. It's for sinners. Take it, my dear. It's for sinners. That's who it's for. Indeed, it is. And it's the only reason that any of us can participate at this meal. We come knowing our sin. We come knowing how far short we fall. But examining ourselves, we also come with an obligation to be prepared and to recognize its importance. So understanding the purpose of this meal and examining our heart to see if we can eat it in a worthy manner and then eating so as to proclaim Christ's death until He comes. Verse 29 For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. Paul does not speak here of eternal judgment, but of discipline of believers. Indeed, some had become sick, and others had even died from their sicknesses because they had dishonored the Lord's body, the church. They fell asleep. That doesn't mean they're just napping. It means they died. By so sinning against the body for whom Christ gave his life, they were disciplined by illness and even death. You guys are in a serious situation, Paul says. and You've got to get this straightened out. You cannot treat the Lord's Supper like this. He has been trying to waken you up. There are those of you that have fallen into great illness and some have died, and you've got to pay attention to what Jesus is telling you. Stop eating it like this. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. So, so don't, don't worry that God's looking to harm us. But be willing to judge. Be willing to discern. Am I, is my attitude right? Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He doesn't hit His people just to hurt them. He disciplines us to help us. And that discipline for some was intended to rescue them from eternal judgment. It's part of the saving grace of God. So then, here's the end of it, verse 33. My brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That might be the indication that some of the wealthy came first and brought all the food and ate it before people could get there. Whatever, just wait for each other. Be uh, deferential to one another. Accommodate. And if anyone is hungry, verse 34, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you direction when I come, and we can only imagine what that meant. But prioritize one another. Is the idea. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to commune with Christ. To commune with our Savior crucified and risen, it's an opportunity to commune as the body of Christ. And so as with believer's baptism, we celebrate the Lord's Supper because Jesus commands us to do so. We come to this table in obedience. The Lord has instructed us this way. Communion with one another as the body of Christ is to lead us to unity and love. It's to bring us to consider one another as the body for whom Christ has died. And it is here, obviously, at its very center, a communion in the saving death and resurrection of Christ, at the table of the Lord's provision. It is here that I identify as one who has died with Christ. It is here that I identify with him as the sacrifice for my sins. It's here that I say, Jesus is my life. I have no higher loyalty. It's a call to focus our attention on the centrality of the gospel in a manner that is worthy of our participation in the salvation that Christ provides. Participation in this meal does not add to our salvation. It cannot do so because our salvation is complete in Christ. His work was finished. We are not offering the body of Christ here. That body has been offered. He's the final high priest, the final sacrifice. There's nothing here that contributes to a salvation that has been completed in Him. Hebrews 9 and 10. But this meal does add to our salvation in the sense of forming and purifying and sanctifying us as God's people. And so we're called here to draw close to God, here to commune with one another and with Him. And Father, as we now prepare to do that, I ask in Your mercy and grace that You will be pleased in this time of worship. For those who know not Christ as Savior, I pray that this might be a demonstration of what Christ has done and what must happen in their life. For those of us who know You, I pray that we would be able rightly to so identify with Christ and to commune with Him and His people. Guide us now in this and sanctify us through this endeavor. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Please stand. And just for a few moments, let's in silence meditate on what this meal is about. Meditate on Christ and His sacrifice for us.